Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mark Woods, Metro columnist for the Florida Times Union. Um, I'm going to start doing a regular podcast that basically will be the story behind the story. And I'm here today with Nate Monroe and Chris Hong, who um, recently had a two-day series that basically was about the a century of dredging and how it's changed the St. John's River. Um, and to me, it seemed like a natural place to start kind of a story behind the story because this I've been at the paper 17 years, and I think Irma probably was as big a story as anything during those 17 years. And I was really proud of the way the paper covered it during it while it was playing out, um, you know, both online and then eventually when we got papers out. And um, but then after that, the natural question was, what do you what do you do now? And you guys jumped in and did that. So. Uh, it seems like a natural behind story behind the story kind of starting point. So I guess maybe if we can go back to September 11th and and the storm coming in and what you guys were doing then and tell me a little bit about that and how this came about. So Chris and I um, sort of drew the short straw and ended up staying at the uh, emergency operations center in downtown. Um, the idea being that we needed people who were going to be in both in close proximity to and able to talk to government officials sort of like during the storm and also be in a place where we would have power and and could reasonably expect to have like internet access because we needed that to, you know, keep, keep the website updated. Uh, And so we were there for the sort of run up to and and the storm itself. And uh, we were able to get out from the EOC and sort of into the immediate environment in downtown, like right as soon as it was safe to do so, um, you know, pretty early in the morning on the 11th, I think. Yeah, or maybe even a little bit before it was technically safe to do so. Um, you know, I remember, you know, you're sleeping on a hard ground and you're basically sleeping in a conference room. And so, and you know, it's me and, you know, two other guys were there. And so there was a lot of snoring and I had a cold. <laughs> and so you'd wake up every couple hours. And you'd go outside to the front of the building. It's an old Federal Reserve or a Federal Bank building um, in downtown. It's a brick house, basically. And um, you know, you'd go out, and everyone's out there smoking cigarettes, watching the storm happen, and you know, just kind of hanging out and observing it. And I woke up at like 6.30, threw on some uh, some of my fishing pants and a shirt, and just walked down to the uh, to the landing, because I'd heard that you know by that time it flooded pretty bad. And yeah, I mean, the river was, you know, all the way on Water Street, and that whole area was under three or four feet of water. It was moving pretty quickly. So, so how quickly did you guys start kind of formulating the, what this this story that just came out over the Sunday and Monday? And and also, I'd tell people, uh, look on Jacksonville.com, because the, uh, the online presentation is pretty incredible, too. Um, when did you start working on this, and how did that – tell me about that. Um, I mean, I think at some point 
in, in the few days after the storm, uh, you know, it was like Chris and I, and, and actually, Mark, I think you were a part of this too. You know, it was just one of these gathering of like reporters around one of the cubicles and we we're just kind of riffing on like, you know, what we had just witnessed and maybe even a little bit delirious after working for, <laughs> you know, a bunch of days in a row. And, um, I, I mean, I think the conversation just kind of shifted to like, yeah, what, like, why did this happen? And, you know, something Chris and I have talked about before, like I, when I bring visitors into town, they're always shocked, you know, when you see like dolphins, like in the river, like right in downtown. Mm-hmm. And, and I think at some point that had come up and just sort of saying like, yeah, like what did dredging or has any of this work we've done actually played a role in it? And on the one hand, it seemed sort of intuitive that maybe it did, but we weren't really sure. I mean, we didn't know. And I think that was, you know, those conversations kind of were, were a tipping point for it. After, you know, you witness a storm surge event like that happen, um, as a reporter, I'm sure as a, as an editor, you're, you you think, okay, well, you guys need to look into this and, and write about it a little bit more. And, you know, you hear a little bit about rising sea level. Um, I have, you know, in Jacksonville, I think that topic is being covered in every coastal community. But I never really have heard or read much about storm surge, you know, specifically to the St. John's River, other than when there are hurricanes and how that has been connected or how that's related to all the man-made work that's been done in the river in the last hundred years. Right. And I think, you know, we've, you know, how many stories have we done on the river through the years? I mean, hundreds. I mean, in the time I've been here and I've written many columns, but I think you guys looked at it, at it in a different way. And, um, kind of that big timeline of history. Um, so that's what I found compelling. And I like the lead to the story. Um, maybe you can, tell that what the lead to the story was and s- explain when did we start dredging the river um sure and and you know one point i will uh before i get to that i do want to piggyback on something chris said which is I, one thing that struck me um you know i grew up in south louisiana is the there is there has been sort of this amazing lack of a discussion about things like coastal erosion and storm surge and sea level rise in Jacksonville. Like I find that kind of stunning. Like where I grew up, you know, people talked about Army Corps projects and I mean these were things like on the nightly news and coastal erosion is a huge problem in Louisiana and more there than than here, but you know, that was I think something else that that played into it. But, um, you know, one thing that, you know, we were talking to researchers about storm surge and, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done, a lot of legwork and regulatory work. And the story talks about this, about, you know, things like, you know, if there's an endangered species, that's going to be impact or, you know, all sorts of environmental um, impacts of the project and because there's rules and regulations. But there's I mean, there is a flooding. There is a storm surge analysis done. But what the researcher said is that typically in projects like this, the storm surge element doesn't get as much attention as say you know, if there's a you know endangered turtle that you know lives you know upper i'm not saying that here but that's just an example if there's an animal or if there's going to be some sort of obvious environmental impact you know that usually gets all the attention or a lot of the attention and storm surges you know often doesn't get as much attention okay so back to yeah the historical perspective um i don't think you know we didn't necessarily plan on telling a story like that um, we did find after just doing a lot of research that, yeah, I mean, we started dredging the river in the, in the late 19th century. Um, and it was really just kind of a matter of going back and, and looking through some scholarly articles that have been done on dredging um, and sort of what the river was like at the time. 
and and when we had realized that the that the mouth of the river was in fact this very shallow, very hard to navigate um, river mouth, uh, that's when I kind of said, okay, well, I wonder if anyone, you know, I wonder if anyone has ever written about it being hard to navigate the river mouth, and that's when I kind of stumbled across a couple of stories about. Um, Jean Ribault and Menendez in this sort of Spanish and Florida, uh, I'm sorry, Spanish and French, um, you know, sort of battle to control Florida. Uh, and that's where we kind of found this anecdote about, you know, Ribault ships not being able to enter the enter the river and they needed to wait for more water. It was just kind of a nice little um, jumping off point for people. And I think uh, hopefully readers found it as interesting as I did. I had no idea that the river used to be like that, that it was so shallow out there. And I think that provides a very striking um, comparison point to today, where it's this very deep, very efficient channel. Right. And I think it illustrated how it it was this gradual change in the river. It's not just one or two dredges. We just have gradually gone. And But how dramatic over the, um, you know, 100 years, which in the grand scheme of the river in Florida, Landscape is, you know, obviously a relatively short period of time, but how dramatically we've changed the river, and um, and you know, I mean, I guess we should also say, as you point out pretty early in the story, that there clearly were benefits to that, that it brought, um, you know, economic growth and prosperity. Um, so I guess maybe touch on that. How did how did this these changes help Jacksonville? Well, I mean, it allowed us to, you know, have a, the port that we have today and. You know, there's all sorts of a lot of the industry, you know, that we have in Jacksonville that's related in some way or another to the port. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, like, did you know, all the work we did, like, how did that, you know, how did that play into effect or what happened with Irma? Because it's it's hard to imagine there even being a city here or a city like Jacksonville if we hadn't built the jetties and we hadn't dredged the river. Um, so it, it wasn't like I don't think there was really a choice of not doing that. Um, I mean, to give you an example of just how shallow the river used to be and how hard it was to bring boats in, uh, back before there was the jetties project, navigating the river meant you anchored your ship offshore and you took a little schooner or a little, you know, rowboat skiff and you went at low tide at the mouth of the river and you, like, had to physically, like, find deep water where the ship could go through and you had to find where the sandbars had shifted because it was constantly changing every day. Mm. So it was... You had to wait for there enough water to be there, the right tide, the right time of day, and you had to go in a small boat and, you know, find the place. And this was every time you brought a ship in. So, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, I've never seen any, you know, hard data or numbers, you know, about you know, how much the port, you know, contributes to the economy. But um, it's hard to imagine the city being, and plus the naval base, too. I mean, that's, you know, there would be no naval base without deep water. So, so how quickly did... They begin noticing changes, and engineers begin noticing changes after you know. You say late eighteen hundreds, we start to change the river. Um, how quickly do we notice some of the things that are changing about it? Yeah, I mean, some of the original engineers who sort of helped design the Jetties project noticed um, changes happening. I mean, it was in in historical terms like almost immediate. Hmm. Um, you know that this channelized river mouth deepened itself to 15 feet without anyone doing anything, just having this restricted channel. Um, and, and that invited faster currents um, upriver, as in some cases as far inland as um, Dames Point, which is, you know, nine miles or so away from the, away from the ocean. 
Um, so it happened very quickly. Uh, and, and of course, in addition to that, piggybacking right on that, once the river mouth was, or I'm sorry, once the jetties were in place, um, we were actually able to um, do significant dredging projects. I mean, that was kind of the key to, that was really an inflection point in in sort of the changing of the river was the was the jetties. I mean, that was that was that allowed us to to be able to turn this thing into something suitable for regular shipping traffic. Hmm. And you mentioned um, in there a 1934 NOAA study, and and I found that interesting. That here we're talking what 80 80 years ago, um, this study that talked about how the river had changed. What tell me tell me about what you found in that study? Um, yeah, so in 1998, NOAA um, sort of decided to update its tide predictions, and one thing. There is not. There is a little bit of a lack of historical data um, in the river, and that that was one thing. It was a little bit of a challenge when we were doing this project. Um, but what Noah did find was that there is one spot in Mayport where there is pretty good data, and it goes back to the 30s. And they found when they when they remeasured um, the the um, tidal currents that at Mayport the tide was coming in um, in some cases as early as an hour before uh, the 1930s predictions, um, hmm. you know, had it coming in. And uh, th- that was actually, I mean, to me, that was one of the more striking things that we came across in this entire project. We ran that by one of the researchers that we talked to who uh, himself was pretty surprised by that and said that he thought that was a fairly drastic change, that, you know, tides are, you know, tides are for something that's influenced by the moon. And to think that, you know, we have engineered the river so much that that we've kind of we're sort of playing with these forces in a way is, is kind of amazing to think about. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can, you know, let's just assume the moon isn't going anywhere the next hundred years. You could pick a spot on anywhere on the coast, and you know, wind and weather will affect it a little bit. But you can predict when high and low tide are going to occur, like in theory, hundred years from now. And so the fact that these current flows and the tide was you know happening in places upriver, you know later or sooner than they had before. And part of it was that the studies they did in the fifties to you know do the current and tide predictions they were outdated and they were using rudimentary equipment. But part of it was also, and the study talks about this a lot. Part of it was all the man-made changes, all the dredging and changes to the channel and that we had done to the river. And that you know for something that's a function of the moon to to change. I mean that it's right. kind of a striking. Uh, thing to find when it comes to what the impact of all the man-made projects we've done right and along those lines was it the cape fear river example where you um scientists said where the places the tides have changed storm surges also changed is that is that correct yeah yeah so these these um a couple of researchers that, that we talked to a lot for this story and their uh the work that they do was was a pretty integral part of what we were able to you know put together yeah, I mean, their theory is basically that that tide, that that a, a tidal movement and a storm surge wave are um, they're, they're similar kinds of waves. They're called long waves, and so there should be some some broad similarities in how those waves move through uh, a river. And and so their theory is that if if you have an estuary that has been dredged repeatedly, uh, and over time the tides have become more extreme, so you get higher tides and. Lo- higher high tides and lower low tides over time 
that that might indicate that storm surge intensity will also increase uh, because it is a similar kind of wave and should have there there should be some correlation uh, and that's that is what they found uh, yeah in in North Carolina and again because there's a little bit of a lack of of good data here this isn't something that they're you know this isn't like a published study or anything and this is all you know theoretical uh but in looking at at what is available in the St. John's River they found a similar kind of dynamic at work uh that the tidal range has increased in downtown um it's almost doubled uh and you know that might indicate that we we could be experiencing more intense storm surge than we were you know almost 100 years ago and using the army corps own numbers that's I wouldn't even say this is a very radical idea. I mean, the Army Corps acknowledges that that deepening the river from 40 to 47 feet, which is what they're doing now, that that will increase um, water levels in a 100-year storm in a storm surge event by several inches, depending on where you are in the river. That seven feet is, is a tiny amount of work compared to all the stuff that we've done before. And so it's almost impossible that, you know, we haven't, that that, that all this work has not, led to uh, intensified storm surge for areas as far away from the ocean as downtown. Right. And one t- detail that I found kind of fascinating um, that you say the Army Corps has never really studied how more than a century of work might make the city more vulnerable to storm surge and, and flooding. And um, I think people would assume, well, that we've we've studied that to death. I mean, that's, you hear kind of our sometimes sitting later say that, but that element of it has not really been studied intensely, correct? Um, yeah, no, it hasn't. And um, it's probably a function of a couple of different things, but, you know, the, the federal law didn't require the Army Corps to even consider this kind of stuff until the 70s. And by the 70s, the vast majority of the engineering work that we had done at the river was already done. And so what we've done in the time since is, you know, deep in relatively little amount of it. Um, and so, yeah, part of it is just a function of law. The Army Corps didn't have to look at it. Mm-hmm. And now they're legally not required to either. The There is a sort of broad um, federal policy that requires agencies to, to look at the consequences of major actions that it's going to take, like a navigation project. Um, but that is a forward-looking requirement. So it basically just means the Army Corps has to pay a lot of attention to this very incremental change it wants to make. It has to focus on the 40 to 47-foot part of it quite a bit. It doesn't really have to focus on all the stuff that came before it. So the 40-foot river is kind of like the new baseline. Like That's what they're working from, not the you know 10 to 18-foot river with the really shallow mouth that was – you know, sort of the natural St. John's are not working from that. Yeah. One interesting thing that Chris, you wrote about and got into d- deep in on was um, Mill Cove, kind of the story of this place with um, unintended, how unintended consequences can affect it. Um, tell me a little bit about it before and after. Okay. So kind of backstory on that for me. Uh, yeah, I, I really like to fish and, um, you know, you talk to some people who've been in this area a while who either, you know, are old enough to remember what Mill Cove used to be like or new people, you know, who were, you know, alive and well when that was – that the old Mill Cove was still around. They would talk about how much different it is now. So Mill Cove, I mean, if you didn't read the story, 
you're driving over Dames Point and you're going towards Arlington over the Dames Point Bridge. You look to your left, downriver, and there's this, on the other side of Quarantine Island, there's this, this large marsh, and it's a very shallow part of water. Anytime you ask someone about fishing there, they go, well, just make sure you go at high tide because you will get stuck. And this is, whether you're in a kayak, you're in a powerboat, you know, a shallow skiff, whatever. If you're there during low tide in the wrong place, you're probably going to be there for a long time because you're going to have to wait for the tide to come in. But um, that used to be, a, now it is a backwater, but it used to be a part of the main river. The, the main river in that area kind of split into two different channels. And, uh, you know, the river went right through there. So there was deep water. Um, it was clear. A lot of, like, sand beaches around there. And, um, you know, you talk to people, and they say it was one of the best places in the world to catch tarpon and, and just to fish in general. And, and you said that we, we can't necessarily pin this down, but the Hemingway may have been there at some point. Yeah, you talk to some uh, you talk to some people who've, you know, families go back there a while, and they'll swear to you that he did. <laughs> uh, I was never able to find anything in writing, but um, – some people are certain that it was that he did and so okay so at what point was it 1950s at what point do we do we change that does mill cove change? yes in the 1950s the army corps finished work on this you know pretty ambitious project they created a new channel called the fulton dames point cutoff um they dug through mile you know more than almost a mile land um around a part of town that you know a town or small village that was called fulton now it's arlington um, and they redirected the flow of the river into that channel. And so what that did, what, by doing that, they built like underwater dams at the north and south entrances of Mill Cove. They extended an island with the dredging spoils, and they essentially just cut it off. And so uh, when that water quit going through Mill Cove and instead went through that new channel, it um, caused all the mud and sand that went in there. There was no way for it to escape, and it just slowly built up over mm-hmm. time and turned into what it is today. And we've spent a lot of money through the years trying to – bring it back yeah so like in the you know after in the mid 70s you know people were really upset they were um you know if you lived there you, you know you used to have you know this deep water section of the river in your backyard basically turned into a swamp or a marsh um i think there was some uh, acrimony over people um their houses were no longer waterfront but the uh, property appraiser didn't see it that way <laughs> so they're still being appraised for you know waterfront property you know you couldn't really boat and fish in there like you used to and you know, a separate issue was the pollution was really bad as well. And so, you know, just that combined with all the changes that happened from the Army Corps project, it was just, you know, like a really great part of the river had essentially died. Hmm. So in the 70s, they um, the Army Corps admitted that they messed up, started looking for a way to, you know, fix it. And in 81, um, Charlie Bennett started trying to get the money in Washington to do the Milko project. And they didn't get it until like 86. And then I don't think they even started work until 1988. So it was a you know multi-decade saga for these people to try to get that fixed. And uh, ultimately, the first project it really didn't do much. Um, they moved out a lot of mud, but there was no you know solution to the underlying problem. Was there hmm. just wasn't enough water flow to clean it out. So have you fished there? Uh, yeah, I've fished outside of it. I've never, and I, I've been once in my kayak, kind of like the. I haven't gone too deep in there because I don't want to mess my boat up. <laughs> I haven't really learned how to navigate back there yet. <laughs> yeah, and it was interesting how you guys ended that story, how kind of um, marshland, take nature reclaiming it in a different way, coming back not as a as river property but as marsh, kind of classical Florida marsh. Yeah, and it's that's a fascinating part of that. And, um, 
you know, so in early in the early two thousands, they also tried they cut a man made channel in there, and that that's helps with navigation. But yeah, I mean, I was talking to Quentin White, and he's saying, you know, that didn't change what's happening there. You know, as that mud and sand builds up, it basically lays a foundation for that marsh grad to grow and spread. And so if that keeps happening, it's you know, he says one day it could you know be a field of green grass, <laughs> and uh, you know, little finger creeks going in, mm-hmm. tidal bed, you know, oyster beds. Um, but you know, another part of that though is. That marshland would help with two things that, you know, um, other than just being marsh, you know, why marsh is important is it cleanses the, like the runoff from that area before it gets into the river. It would also act as a barrier for any storm surge event that were to happen in the future. You know, mm-hmm. There would be, you know, this buffer of grass and mud to prevent the water from hitting the homes. So, so um, since, you know, since this came out the last couple of days, and it's, we put it online last week, so it's actually been out more than that. Um, what, what kind of reaction have you guys got? A lot of positive feedback. Um, a lot of emails from readers. A lot of people have you know, shared the story on Twitter and complimented us. How about you, Nate? Have you heard from folks? Um, we have heard from uh, a good number of like regular folks, which is um, odd for us. We Chris and I usually cover City Hall, and so uh, <laughs> we don't typically hear from anybody except politicians when we <laughs> you know, write stories about City Hall. Um, it's been like the exact opposite this time. Uh, there there really hasn't been any reaction from city leadership or the army corps um you know the mayor sort of has this habit of like not engaging with stories that he doesn't view as part of his agenda uh this i don't think qualifies either and so uh i don't necessarily expect anything but but yeah it's sort of fun for us because it is like the exact opposite of uh what we normally um you know we normally experience and you know something uh on the on the mill cove stuff and just sort of piggyback on and, and when we talk about reactions one thing and this is not explicitly spelled out in either story but but it's probably something we're talking about you know the the army corps has basically budgeted no mitigation mm-hmm. for the dredging project uh the port has put up money to pay for monitoring uh what Mill Cove shows, uh, I think, pretty pretty vividly is that the the problem isn't necessarily that there wouldn't be money to watch something go wrong. The problem is that if something does go wrong, we need the money to fix it in the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it, the the time to to fight for sort of like mitigation in these kinds of projects would be now. Hmm. When the city is lobbying to get the overall project done, that's when you can get money to help pay for any sort of issues that might arise during the course of the project. Because what happened with Mill Cove is they, you know, they they spend the money, they create this cutoff channel, and then a few years later we start seeing these negative impacts. And guess what? We have to go through the whole process again of studying studying the problem finding fighting for money for years and years and years to get it that stuff's not easy it's a lot harder now than it was in the 80s um and so that that's something that's that's important you know if if people do think that uh storm surge uh is a problem that we need to start uh you know spending money on this is the time to fight for it this would be the time to to start lobbying the government to help us pay for it right and that task force that existed before um, Mayor Curry that was had been one of their recommendations that um, seemed to be um, very much 
overall in favor of the dredging, but they were saying we need more mitigation. And um, yeah, and that was mostly environment. You know, they they were more focused on things like uh, salinity intrusion and and you know damage to to wildlife. There really wasn't a discussion about storm surge in those meetings because again, like it just wasn't something that was really talked about before Irma. Uh, and that doesn't this isn't downplaying all those you know the ecological impacts uh it's just that we we hadn't really had the discussion and yeah you're right i mean they called for i mean that task force which was mostly you know business people it wasn't like this was some sure group of you know liberal environmental activists um i think they had they had pegged the number at about 50 million they said you know we need maybe 50 million for mitigation um yeah i mean there are things that can be done this the stories we wrote weren't are you know we're not an argument for like not dredging the river uh that might be how maybe a port booster might view it but the point is there are things that you can do to help mitigate for storm surge impact while dredging the river i mean if that's what we choose to do um there are ways that you can you know mitigate for these things it just has to be done and and you pointed to um charleston as a place where things kind of evolved as they're obviously moving ahead too but they changed the army corps changed their plans there correct yeah they had done i mean the army corps there and i should say i mean it was a different project that sure that estuary is a lot different than st john's but yeah i mean the army corps did a storm surge study or contracted a storm surge study to be done the study found man eh, this dredge might increase water levels in, in a storm by uh, one to three inches or something it was like the lower end of what you would expect of what the core expects here um in charleston nonetheless that finding was enough to trigger this phase two study that took a more refined approach and did a better job explaining why uh those changes those potential increases were insignificant hmm. the problem here is that the core found more a uh, uh, higher potential water level increases um, but just sort of wrote them off saying they were insignificant. They didn't really explain why. They certainly didn't do a second study. And, and yeah, there was really no effort at sort of saying, oh, well, you know, the, the you know these increases might look like a lot, but they're within the margin of error of the FEMA flood maps. They didn't bother sort of explaining why. They just said, oh, it's not significant. Hmm. Yeah. Part of the takeaway for me was that Irma wasn't just a natural disaster. In part, it was man-made. That, um, I know I'm editorializing now i guess i get to do that as a columnist um but then there was another quote that said uh from one of the researchers understanding the past can help us design for the future Uh, to me that was one of the big quotes in there and kind of begs the next question are we doing that i mean we're eight months past Irma, irma we're just about to start another hurricane season um you know are we doing that for the future yeah i mean that's a that was a big takeaway for me too. One of the biggest, I think, takeaways you should get because if you think about it, when the city was built and they decided to put downtown on the river and the neighborhoods around it, um, you know, the river was a lot different than it is today. There was, you know, there was, uh, you know, not the ocean was not as much a part of the downtown river as it is now. And so, um, you know, understanding the past effects. I mean that can also help you understand what it's going to be like, you know, if you keep dredging the river and keep making it deeper. I mean, what Nate said is is a huge takeaway, too. It's not, I mean, it was the lack of an explanation of why it's insignificant. I mean, if you're 
if your house flooded during Irma or if you're in one of these areas that could see a potential eight inch increase of you know a hundred year storm, I, I'm sure those people, if they read the story, I, I would want to know why it's insignificant. You know, not not necessarily to stop the project, but just to know, well, is my house going to flood? You know, mm-hmm. if we're going to have another storm. Oh, yeah, and I would say that I mean that. Um, yes, designing for the future. This is something the Army Corps talks about and acknowledges the need to do. And the Corps is, is usually pretty good about acknowledging factors like sea level rise within you know the, the studies they do on these on these navigation projects. But they really haven't, in any apparent way, designed this project to accommodate that reality. You know, there's no. And this gets us back to the thing about mitigation. Like, there is no obvious effort at mitigating storm surge or sea level rise. They just kind of say it'll happen. Hmm. And and that's, you know, again, that's the point. If if you want the core to start taking that stuff into account, you have to start fighting for the money now. Uh, because down the road, it's going to be a lot harder to do if it's not attached to a bigger, you know, sort of navigation big ticket project. Um, the core can, the core. There is work that could be done, uh, restoring some of these tributaries to their natural depths. A lot of these, you know, Mill Cove is not alone in, in that. It is not the only sort of um, kind of part of the river that is silted in over time. A lot of these tributaries have done that. It's possible that restoring the depth of those tributaries can could help mitigate storm surge hmm. uh, in the future. But that's expensive, and that stuff takes a while. Uh, there's a project right now the city has signed off on for the Corps to do this tiny little project in um, Big Fish Weir Creek. Uh, it's like a $6 million project. It's small, but it took like a decade to get hmm. to this point. Mm-hmm. If we want, if you know that was an option we wanted to pursue in the future, I mean, that's a big undertaking. If we wanted to start dredging multiple tributaries. So it's just something to think about. And it's not. It, it doesn't stop at the environmental mitigation for storm surge too. It's you know you're you're building on the water or you're you know, for example, you have the district development. You have across the river, um, the shipyards, whatever Shad Khan's calling it these days. Um, you know, if if there's really no discussion about storm surge, um, you know, I, I have no idea what goes into the construction and design of these types of developments. But you know, I, I would assume that there's going to be some sort of you know, planning to protect their investment, but I don't I mean I, I don't know what the. It's not really a big part of the discussion. You know, I don't know what the city regulations require, but it, it seems if it was talked about more, it would be more on people's minds. I mean, if you look at the Wells Fargo building, it flooded during the storm, and they had a lot of their you know, in, you know their computer and elevator infrastructure and like mm-hmm. the, the garage you know the garage level of that building, and it filled with water. That seemed like an easy thing to prevent. And you hear about that, and you know this is just me talking. I don't think storm surge was on uh, the minds of the people who manage or own that building, putting all that stuff down there. And you know, I'm, maybe next time there's a storm, everyone will be a little bit more prepared. Right. If people haven't read it yet, um, go on Jacksonville.com. The presentation is really impressive. You guys managed to get drone footage on uh, on Jacksonville.com, which is a uh, the lead shots which are very compelling and fun to look at um so yeah check it out on jacksonville.com and uh, thanks for joining us
just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.